Hey there, and welcome to the Aurelius Podcast. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder and CEO here at Aurelius, and your host for the show. This is a bit of a longer episode, but it was really, really cool conversation from someone not directly in the UX product or research world, but discussing a super relevant topic, empathy. On this episode, we spoke with Jason Voyevich, a fractional CMO and author of a few upcoming books about empathy and humanizing marketing. Jason has a deep background as a marketer and product creator. He's had a ton of exposure to working with data in his professional life, and he's seen firsthand how quantitative data can help and hurt the decisions we make. After some time, he decided he wanted to write more and is working on a few books about the dangers of quantitative data and the influence it's had in the world of marketing and product development. Jason has also been doing extensive research into empathy, what that means in a multitude of professions that are quote-unquote empathy-heavy in order to be successful. He spoke with us specifically around some examples of empathy in the world of nursing and healthcare, where he shared some pretty surprising findings that are very applicable to what we do as designers, researchers, and makers in the digital world. Jason may not be an obvious choice for our podcast, but you'll quickly understand why I asked him to join us, given how much we, we discussed understanding people and building empathy. Of course, one of the biggest reasons we made Aurelius is to help you and your teams bring better customer understanding and empathy into everyday decisions. This is why we built Aurelius, a user research repository for UX research and product teams. Aurelius is a user research repository where you can tag, organize, search, and share all of your research data and key insights in one place. If that's something you need help with, I invite you to check it out for a 14-day free trial over at our website, which is www.aureliuslab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, let's get to the show with our guest, Jason Voyevich. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 34 with Jason Voyevich. He's a fractional CMO and an author of several upcoming books, about humanizing consumerism and uh, the surrounding topics therein of marketing and product. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it, Zach. Good to be here. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. Uh, some pretty interesting stuff that you're researching, uh, writing about, but I'll let you sort of introduce that. And uh, as is tr traditional fashion now uh, in our show, ask you a little bit about like, what's the work that you're doing right now? What are things you care about for those listening who may not have heard about you? No, that's a good question. Uh, I think, uh, you know, when we think about consumerism and marketing and design and, you know, all of those issues coming up right now, uh, there are a lot of folks writing and talking about data and how we understand behavioral economics and psychology. And there's a lot of great work being done there. But I feel, and my perspective is, that that pendulum swung a little bit too far in that direction. And there's so much, the more, uh, it's one of those things when you talk with a real scientist, you know, not someone who talks about science, but a real scientist, and you really dig into what do they really know when they do a study. The way you can tell kind of science from scientism mm -hmm. is real good science makes really, really narrow claims on very specific questions. It's very, very tight. But scientism is taking that little bit of information and making it a big, big deal. Now, certainly there are things like prospect theory and other good, reliable psycho psychological and behavioral economic stuff out there. But 
when we think about all of the little pieces of data that we're trying to make really big conclusions out of, uh, it's just too complicated for that. And I think the pendulum has swung too far in the data direction. Mm -hmm. My mission, what I'm writing about, is putting some of the humanity back in that and taking more of a humanistic sort of approach. And what can we learn from the humanities? What can we learn from empathy? What can we learn from design that will uh, help balance that out a little bit? So that's what I'm writing about. That's what I'm researching. I'm finding people a lot smarter than I am to help me through that. And the fractional chief marketing officer is how I pay the bills while I do that. So yeah, yeah that's what I'm working on. Yeah, right on. I have a lot of questions that I want to I want to dig into based on what you just said there. Uh, but it's worth noting, too, that before we even go any further, uh, we're very lucky. Jason lives here in Minneapolis. Uh, so we got to have him in person. That's uh, that's not the most common occurrence necessarily with our show. So this is great. We get to have a, a chat in person this time. No, I like that, too. It's uh, Minneapolis is a beautiful town. Northeast Minneapolis, a great neighborhood growing fast. You know, a lot of really interesting things going on around here. And, uh, you know, there's so much you know, going on, you know, just for those of you who know the community, understand how fast it's growing and understand all of the, you know, city planning and all of those things that have to go in and, you know, actually reading about the struggles the city planners are having and the limits of the data that they can get on new housing developments and traffic patterns. And they've had to go and actually talk with people like mm -hmm. us who live here mm -hmm. to find out what is really going on inside our heads and i've been interviewed a couple of times you know moving into the northeast minneapolis neighborhoods and it's been really interesting to hear the kind of questions about oh well you must be a you know millennial with this type of job and this type of dog at home i said well actually you know my wife and i are in our early 40s we're empty nesters we had our kids early there in college uh, we downsized. We sold our house in the suburbs. Uh, my wife's allergic to animals, so we can't have any. But dogs have essentially taken over our building, mm -hmm. and you know we, it, you know, it's just it's so different to get that that get that kind of perspective. You have such a richer discussion when you actually get to know people, yeah. and you see them as individual people mm -hmm. versus you know statistics that fill a city planning grid. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, I want to go back to something you said as sort of as part of your introduction, the work you're doing, the research you're doing and the things you're interested in. There are two things that really jumped out at me. The first one is this idea of being scientific and scientism, which I believe you said, that's curious for me. I would love to hear more about what exactly that means. But I think that also wraps into to question number two, which is it, it begs asking, well, why is this a problem? It might seem there's an, an obvious answer to that, but I suspect you have more to share. Why is it an issue that data is sort of driving a lot of the things that we do? Yeah, I think uh, I'm not an anti-data guy. Anyone who knows me uh, knows that usually for the fractional CMO work that I do and how you know clients and other agencies and people bring me into conversations usually is because of a data perspective. Mm -hmm. Usually it's to help understand something about what's going on and, you know, do the math, do the regression, you know, do all of that analysis work. But what I discovered in doing all of that work is that work is humbling. And anyone who works with data enough is humbled by it. You can't not be. Uh, 
the more you really know about it, the less you understand. And give you an example, you know, let's just take something simple like, you know, website statistics or website visits. Uh, Most of the time when you uh, talk with a software vendor about what they can do for you and how much data they can give you and, hey, we can track the IP addresses of the people coming to the website and we can reverse engineer where they're coming from and we can tell you where they're going on the website. And it sounds really great. Mm-hmm. But when you actually dig into that data and you look at out of the thousand visitors that are coming, how many people can you actually do that with? Well, what you discover is a huge chunk of them have uh, privacy turned on or they're going incognito on their browser. So you can't get any of that. That's all masked. Uh, and a huge chunk of those folks come from Comcast or AT&T or Verizon. Well, who do you think those are? That's the ISP they're using to access the site. So when you really boil down, what can you really learn about all of the those thousand visitors? You might only learn that the truth about 40 to 50 of them. Mm-hmm. So in those 40 to 50, well, what percent of the total is that? You know, that's maybe 5% of the total. Flip that on its head. That's 95% of the visitors to your site, you really don't know much about them at all other than what they're doing once they're there. Mm -hmm. So the more you actually dig into that data and you look at it and you struggle with it, the narrower the conclusion you can really draw. But scientism is all about taking that 5% and kind of blowing it up into, you know, it's kind of the tail wagging the dog or in the case of where we are now, you know, the tail wagging the cat. same problem either way. And that's that's my issue with kind of scientism and data in general is we we actually know so little mm-hmm. about what's going on. And we need to supplement that with not only some common sense. If common sense were common, everyone would have it. Uh, but we can use tools. You know, we can use design tools and we can use empathetic tools and we can use these things to help us supplement that knowledge and help us make sense of the limited data we really do have. Yeah. All right. So this is interesting. I just to recap that at least the high points I'm taking from what you're saying, Jason, are that the problem with data and, uh, you know, whatever, quote unquote, data driven decisions right now is that it's actually not that reliable. It's this false sense of confidence that doesn't necessarily represent the people you're trying to serve. And hey, wouldn't you know, going back and actually talking to them helps really round that out. And it's something maybe we've turned uh, a deaf ear to in favor of data. Well, you know, it's, it's so much easier. You know, I've, uh, you know, not only have I been on the agency side and the consulting side, but I've been on the other side of that too. I've been in the CMO's chair. I've been in, you know, executive suites and, you know, talked with CMOs and CFOs. And it's really hard You know, if you want to talk about here's the idea we have about these customers and it seems fuzzy and it seems contradictory and it seems complex, I mean, that's how people really are. Uh, They're complex. They're fuzzy. They do weird. They do weird shit. That's what people do. But most of them, if you think about, well, where do most CEOs and CFOs come from? What's their background? They're usually operations people or they're finance people. And if you think about, well, what makes them feel secure and feel safe? It's things that are measurable and discrete and specific. So if you run a shop floor 
or a manufacturing environment, there isn't a whole lot of fuzzy in there. At least there shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can measure pretty much everything in there, and that's what Six Sigma is all about. Mm-hmm. So measure, 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 improve, improve, improve. It's a wonderful idea. It works really well for variables you can control and works really poorly or a lot less well. You know, not poorly, but a lot less well, and it gives you a lot less certainty with people who don't need to do what you think they should do or as soon as you think they're doing something, know that you're doing that and do something else just to kind of screw with you. Fascinating. Okay, so you've been doing a lot of research about this. I suspect you have some ideas how we turn this around. Yeah, I, it's, I've learned a ton. It's like I said, if the if learning about data was humbling, uh, learning about empathy and learning about how to be a humanist was even more humbling. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the first one of the first threads that I went down was understanding well. Why is empathy, if empathy is the answer to that, and that's a way to help us, and you know, as marketing folks and advertising people, and my whole family were designers, entrepreneurs, advertising folks, uh, artists. So I've got a lot of training in this and a lot of family experience. We're a very empathetic family. Uh, and I started to wonder, well, why is empathy such hard work? You know, it is emotionally really, really hard work to see something honestly from another person's point of view and to really truly listen is a very active process mm-hmm. you know not a passive one and that's where people get listening wrong all the time listening is a lot harder than talking so i thought well why is it hard work and why are so many advertising people burning out and leaving why are so many designers burning out and leaving the field and doing something else and you know so i was researching well what fields really struggle with that? And I came across some research from Dr. Sherry Chesak at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, she is great, by the way, if you guys have the opportunity to meet her. She's the uh, head of nursing clinical research at Mayo. She has been very generous with her time. She met with me uh, a couple of years ago on a very, very cold January day. Uh, a very generous person. Uh, exactly what you'd think of when you think of a nurse you know, friendly, unassuming, and smarter than eight of me put together. Uh, she she found that uh, nurses face the same problem. You know, if you think about nurses, uh, they are the ultimate in empathy. Uh, you know, a designer or an advertising person is empathetic, sure, but we're trying to sell you something. That's that's our job. Right. Okay. Uh, but a nurse has to be 100% empathetic. It is completely about the other person because that's their job to take care of someone. What they found out was they were finding the same burnout rate in first-year nursing students that we find in first-year advertising professionals. Hmm. That about one in four nurses was leaving the field in the first year. And think about any profession like that. How do you... There's no way you can... Uh, maintain that kind of burnout rate. Right. And what what they found was it wasn't that they couldn't hack it, you know, from a technical perspective. You know, nursing is uh, my my love and respect to all my advertising friends out there, but nursing is way more technically challenging 
than advertising and design. Sure. You, I mean, come on. Yeah. It's, the stakes it's medicine. Higher, There's too, a, right? Yeah, the stakes are a bit higher. <laughs> as um, things go. <laughs> as, as, as those go. Uh, I would not want someone slacking if I'm in a hospital bed. So it's technically very, very challenging, as you could probably guess. And if there are nurses listening, uh, you already know this. Uh, but it wasn't that. What they found was what they weren't prepared for was the emotional work involved that what would happen is they would begin to burn out and burnout was really well documented uh, for physicians that when physicians burn out they lose their ability to connect with other people they become it manifests in arrogance it manifests in all kinds of nasty stuff and their performance actually decreases uh, when that happens uh, but nurses you know where a doctor is kind of coming in and out I don't know if you've ever had to be in the hospital I know I have doctor kind of comes in and out you know what two three times a day the nurse is in there all the time maybe every 10 minutes maybe constantly in icu it takes a huge toll emotionally for someone like that and they were burning out and dr chesek wanted to figure out why and what to do about it and what they uh in the really short story is they learned is they needed the same way they needed to train technical competency they needed to train empathetic competency and it wasn't about well how do i zach how do i ask better questions about how you how do i take care of you better what they found was you need to take care of yourself better mm. that's the crazy part about this that empathy isn't about empathy doesn't come from a place of caring about you Empathy comes from a well of strength of taking care of yourself. And so they needed to train resiliency. And there's a ton of research and there's a lot of nuance in there that I am really glossing over and skipping over uh, that I'm sure she's pulling her hair out right now. Uh, but it's, it is groundbreaking and uh, wonderful work uh, there. Really that, life-changing stuff. That's really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned to you a little bit before we started recording, I actually just recently gave a talk. Uh, well, there's a couple that I've been giving recently, and, and they both, in some form or fashion, touch pretty heavily on the idea of empathy because of the reasons you described. I mean, this is a big part of the work that we do. Um, and interestingly enough, a, a lot of the examples and points that I make is, is not having empathy just for the people you make things for, but who you work with and for. And you're bringing yet another angle to this, which is really sort of like full circle for me that caring for yourself is the means to doing uh, or to being uh, empathetic. How do you do that? What, is, what does that really mean? It's easy to say, I think, but I, I suspect people listening to this are going, well, okay, well, then what do I do? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's funny. And sometimes it's easier to think about that in terms of what happens when you don't. And, uh, you know, I worked for product development firms and actually spent a fair amount of my professional career in product development in a number of capacities. And uh, what I, I I never really understood what the issue was when we were doing user interviews and we were doing ethnography and all of those uh, great things that you're supposed to do. And that, frankly, I and probably a lot of the people listening to this are really well trained for. Okay. And what I could never get my hand head around was 
projection and substitution. And what that is, is when you are projecting your own thoughts and biases and insecurities and conclusions onto the person you're talking to. Because you can't, you know, now the, you know, a, a true designer, someone who's really well trained is going to always keep asking questions and keep asking questions and keep asking questions, but that doesn't fix it. Okay. Mm -hmm. That doesn't, you know, in the process of asking a question, you're making an assumption about what the answer might be. And the path of the question you take might do that. I worked on a uh, medication adherence project, and it was about getting folks, folks to take their medication. It's a huge problem. Anyone in the in a pharmacy uh, business listening to this knows precisely what I'm talking about. But medication adherence rates for all different types of conditions are nowhere close to 100%. How many people take all the antibiotics in the bottle, mm -hmm. even though they were told about eight times before they left that they were supposed to take all of them? Mm -hmm. Most people don't. Uh, well, in the process of developing this product and an answer, asking and answering the questions, when I would look at the transcripts, what I realized was the, the lines of questioning we were going down were pretty heavily influenced by the relationship that you know, the interviewer had with her or his parents and what that relationship was like of helping them. Like, what was your mom or dad's experience taking meds? And we can't separate ourselves from, you know, there's no, you know, it's kind of a scientific impossibility to, uh, you know, not change something that you are, you know, that you're, you're, you're trying to measure. You can't take yourself out of it. Uh, but it's so easy to have, you know, to kind of project our own thoughts, emotions, feelings onto the other person. And well, who could do that better than, you know, than other folks? And what I learned was in doing lots of the research after I talked with Dr. Chesak was that folks who had better kind of resiliency and self-confidence and understood their own biases better and did a lot of that self-reflection and introspection mm -hmm. were better able to recognize when they were doing that okay. and could correct it. So, you know, from, you know, her research really focuses on, you gotta, uh, she uses the, the aircraft metaphor. Okay. Uh, she, her, the first thing she said to me is just like, well, this can be really hard to understand, but think of it this way. What does the flight attendant always tell you when you get on the plane? Put on your own mask before you help someone else. Mm -hmm. You can't help someone else unless you help yourself first. And she and uh, Dr. Amit Sood uh, at the Mayo Clinic as well, who runs the, uh, you know, runs the overall uh, group there. Uh, they work on stress management and resiliency and gratitude exercises and really learning how to take care of yourself. The more, the more secure you are, the more empathetic you can be. So in your case, Zach, you know, when you think about, hey, you've got to think about who you're designing for, the people you're working with, I would encourage the people listening, the research is pretty clear. You got to do both of those things and you also have to think about you as the designer. How are you taking care of yourself? Because the better you do that, the better you'll be able to see what the need really is.
and better able to, if I'm in a really good secure place, I can truly, I can listen better to someone else because I'm not, I don't have the insecurities in the way. Yeah. Am I making sense? I, this, this definitely does make sense. It's just the thing that pops into my head then is, you know, this is pretty, because this is pretty big stuff. This isn't anything that I've heard anybody talk about that should be done to, I mean, because what you're talking about here, I'll just take a step back. What you're talking about here is like everybody taking care of themselves to really take care of each other. That's, that's like the high level theme I hear here. Right. Yes. And so the thing is there, like this is, this goes far beyond just how do we do better research? <laughs> how do we, how do we build better stuff? This is like, how do you treat yourself and understand yourself better as a means to then become the, the servant and, and, and companion in the world that you can be? Your job just happens to be a designer. And, and in many cases, you're expected to do that in very impactful ways. Yeah, I think being a designer, something that's unique. And my dad was a designer. Uh, you know, I don't have, you know, his uh, talent in that. But I work with a lot of designers. And now I consider myself an artist and a writer in that way. And but I think it's easy in those fields because those are high empathy fields. Uh, you know, nursing is one, design, uh, police, you know, law enforcement. Uh, there are a lot of high empathy kind of fields. That's where you tend to see it first. And I think we're kind of on the front lines of that fight where if we can't do it, uh, the chances of your average, you know, accountant being able to do it are a lot lower. So we need to, I feel like we need to lead the way in really understanding that better and better and taking care of ourselves uh, better and better to show other people that it can be done mm -hmm. and kind of lead the way. Because I think, you know, bringing it up a level and I think it's, um, uh, it makes sense to do that. One thing that uh, I've noticed, and gosh, you'd, you'd have to be under a rock not to, is that uh, just how much anger and rage uh, and frustration there is in our culture right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, you know, I'm a subscriber to the New York Times. Uh, you know, you just, you hit CNN or I'm in the gym and there's Fox News on and you can't help, you know, spend 10 minutes on the New York Times. Spend 10 minutes watching Fox News, whichever, whether you're right or left, you could do do the opposite thing, like do both. There is no way you could not feel that anger and that rage and that frustration kind of wash over you. And when you're done, those programs and that media are just, they make you mad. It's kind of what they're there to do, mm -hmm. you know, because that's, they figured out a long time ago, that's what gets them clicks. It's what keeps viewers engaged, but sort of to blame them is a bit of a red herring. It's not really, it's not their fault. It's that they are reflecting what we are right now, that it's how else do you explain, you know, the movements going on justifiable rage and anger, but so much rage and anger that those things are the enemies of the empathy. They're the enemies of us understanding other people, because when we feel that, you know, think about this. If you've been in a user research project and you're doing an interview with someone and you're mad and you're frustrated and you're angry, let's say 
you're driving to the interview, you're driving, you're going to do some ethnography, you're driving to the person's house, traffic was bad, uh, you're listening to Fox News on the way, and you're all whipped up, and you get there, are you really going to show up for that interview? Are you really going to show up for that conversation? And the answer is like, well, yeah, I'm a pro. I can, I can do it. I can be there. Uh, I'm going to tell you the, what we do know from the research tells us uh, you can't and you won't. And you won't do as good a job. And, uh, and I think it's more than just design. I mean, think about all the different aspects of your life. You come home and you're angry and you're all whipped up about something. Are you a good husband, son, father, brother, wife, girlfriend, daughter? No, probably not. And it's it's not helping us. So I think there's a lot to what uh, Dr. Chesak is trying to tell us through her research yeah. that she, like a good scientist, is answering very narrow questions and really trying to hone in on, does it make sense? Does it help nurses to train them on resiliency? But no, the I am not bound. I'm not a scientist. So I am, and I recognize that I am performing a little bit of scientism by doing this. I'm taking something small and seeing how much bigger I can make it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I recognize that. Uh, but I think it's important. It's an important discussion to have. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a feeling that folks listening to this are probably spinning around in their head. Hey, holy crap, I didn't, I just haven't thought of it that way before. Yeah. Because I know I hadn't. Yeah. I Well, I certainly haven't either. And that's why this is a pretty intriguing conversation to me. The one thing that kind of just came into my mind too, as you were sharing some of that, Jason, was we started this by talking about data. And so how does that come back into this, right? Where taking care of yourself and like, how did we get so far away? Is what is it because our our focus or that uh, that pursuit and a false sense of confidence in data? I think so. I think there's a lot to it. I don't think there's one answer there. But, you know, if you think about it and you kind of follow the path on, uh, you follow the data path and it's it's not a bad path, but it's not what people expect. People expect that when they learn more and more and they get more and more data that they will have more and more certainty. Mm -hmm. And that's a comforting thing. Most people want certainty in their lives. And many professions, marketing included, marketing has undergone in the past decade probably the biggest data-driven revolution of almost any field. If you are not uh, well-versed in data analysis and statistics and quantitative reasoning, uh, the chances of you having a career in marketing in the next 10 years are next to zero. Uh, you're just not going to be able to have one. That's not a bad thing, by the way. There's that old saying that, you know, half of my advertising works, half of it doesn't. I just wish I knew which was which. Uh, well, the data revolution said, if I just collect more and more data and I know more and more about it, I will understand the answer to that question better and better. And that... Because, you know, if I don't know the answer to the question, it's because I failed from a data perspective, you know, that there's something wrong with my approach. If I can't measure ROI, um, 
there's an article on LinkedIn just today that I read on the way over here that said a something like 50% of marketing and communications people either cannot or will not measure ROI. So their CEOs are turning to purchasing, procurement, and finance to help them do that. Uh, well, think about that. That sucks from a communicator or marketing and artist's point of view that, okay, I, I must be failing at that. And I talk with a lot of marketing folks who admit privately to me that they really feel like they're failing. Uh, at that. And it's not, I, I argue it's not their fault. It's just a matter of not really understanding the scientific process and the data driven process. That the more you understand, or, you know, the more data you collect, the less you may understand, not the more you might understand. So the more marketing folks and designers, frankly, and other artists have gotten into data, the more they realize wow, human beings are a mess. We are really complicated and we do weird shit mm -hmm. uh, and we do really unpredictable things. And the moment we think, oh, I can use these words to get you to click on the email headline. Well, that only works for a little while until people figure you out and they're like, oh, I'm not going to click on another headline that says just this one weird trick. Remember that? Mm -hmm. That was a thing for like 18 months that that was the headline that got you to click. Well, now it doesn't work. Well, of course it doesn't work because we figured it out. So it's this kind of weird cat and mouse game where you just understand it's so hard to get to the point where you really understand all of the nuances of what, what makes people tick. And, you know, it's no big surprise to me that, you know, we're, we don't have that same kind of self-confidence in, in our own skills that we did maybe 20 years ago. And maybe back then there was a bit of a false confidence that we thought we knew more than we did. Mm -hmm. And now the data pendulum has swung the other way. And now we are very aware of our own ignorance. Mm -hmm. And that's causing a bit of a crisis of confidence. And when you think about that, and people don't feel very secure about their skills and they're burning out. Well, how can I empathize which is at the core of design, it's at the core of advertising, it's at the core of marketing is empathy. If I, if I feel less and less secure about what I'm doing and I don't feel good, I, Dr. Chesek's research would tell me I can't empathize with someone else. And it'll, actually, it's a vicious cycle and it'll make it worse. So when I think about data, I think marketing folks, designers, artists uh, need to get better at understanding what data is and what its limits are and how to use it as a tool and not let it consume them. You know, kind of learn the same way that scientists learn. And I think they'd actually, they would do well for themselves not to talk with other software folks and other science, you know, scientismists. But actually talk with real scientists mm -hmm. and talk with them about, well, how do you handle the uncertainty? How do you handle how little you really know about something? And because, you know, those folks, the actual, the, the hard scientists uh, have had hundreds of years to figure out 
you know, like, no, we build on knowledge slowly over time. It's okay. You got to accept the uncertainty. It doesn't mean you're not doing well. It just means your experiment failed. It's okay. You'll figure it out. You'll do it better next time. Yeah. I'm going to ask you what I think, what I personally think is a, is a tough question is those are the good ones i think so but before i do let's i'll i'll I'll, I'll try to repackage everything you shared there is uh so data here is misunderstood it does breed that false sense of confidence from a lack of understanding of its limits in some cases right um why does this matter why does it matter that this is happening why not just continue on business as usual as you would advocate we should bring empathy back more into this work we should I think of the way you put it, humanize the work that we do more. Why does that matter? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think about that a lot uh, in terms of, well, is the default position is, well, isn't the world better uh, today than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Isn't marketing better than it was then? And aren't we, hasn't data made it so much better? And I think in some ways, perhaps, and in some ways, no, it really hasn't. Um, You know, uh, it's kind of funny. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, My dad was a designer, uh, you know, a a graphic artist, you know, so, you know, I I think in the agency world, they'd... uh, you'd pair a designer with a copywriter and that was kind of the old, you know, the team. Uh, he was a designer, you know. Um, and when I was a kid, he used to tell me kind of the pyramid rule in advertising. He said, uh, you know, 70% of, or he flipped it the other side. He started at the top, always started at the top. So 10% of all the advertising you would see is killer. It's awesome. It's very, very well done stuff. Uh, it's great, memorable, different, all of those things. The next 20% down on the pyramid uh, was it's professionally okay. A lot of store circulars you see, it doesn't have any mistakes in it. It's like you look at the Target ad, it's getting on Halloween, they got kids' costumes in there. Mm-hmm. Sure, you're not screwing that up. That's good. You know, there are no spelling errors in there, at least most of the time. It's good. But he said 70% of all marketing and advertising he said in his word he's like it's just shit it actually destroys value it would be better off not done at all it actually you you would have just it would have been better just to throw the money away uh than do that work um because it's actually confusing people it's not really good stuff fast forward to 2011 and i was at the uh, u of m i was in grad school and I decided to do grad school late because I was so frustrated with, like, I didn't think I was getting any better at my career. So I decided I'm going to go to grad school. I'm at the University of Minnesota. It's the strategic communications program, probably the best advertising communications program in the country uh, for folks like us. Uh, so I'm in there and it was uh, Dr. John Amy, uh, retired now, fantastic guy. He drew a pyramid on the board. And he had, you know, 10% up at the top. That was good. 20% professionally okay. And then he had a better name than my dad for the for the bottom 70. He called it bad advertising, which, come on, that's that's good. It's good advertising. 
Yeah, that is that is some that's a damn good name right there. And I couldn't I usually I was kind of a talker in class. I drove them nuts, I'm sure, but I couldn't say anything for the rest of the class. I said I heard that from my dad 30 years ago. You know, when I was a little kid and I'm hearing it again right now 30 years later and we're well into the data revolution now. How could it be that 70% of what we do, a majority, and you could quibble about the number, the number's not important, it just says the majority of what we're doing in marketing and advertising, and I think in design, in a lot of fields, is just crap. How is that possible? They thought, well, with all this data, with all this stuff we're doing, we're, we're measuring so much more, we're optimizing, we're doing all this stuff. It's it's not working uh, on a whole. I mean, the, and, and well, why not? Well, if, you know, it's kind of the, uh, you know, it's, you know, uh, Hawthorne effect, really, when you, when you think about it. And that's that old idea that when you observe something, you change it. You cannot be an objective observer. And, you know, the more data we collect, we cannot collect data passively. By collecting data, we change the assumptions in the audience, and the audience becomes more sophisticated, and they become better, and it is a bit of a cat and mouse. Marketing and design and advertising do not exist outside of the context of, you know, it, there's a relationship there between the communicator and the audience, and it's a symbiotic sort of relationship. So when I think about, well, okay, we've got a lot more data. And it's clearly not on the whole improving the overall quality of what's going on. Well, why does it matter? Uh, we want to get better. You know, we want to, there's, you know, from an economics perspective, there are huge inefficiencies in, you know, when we think about design and we think about advertising, we think about marketing generally the inefficiency inherent in missing with 70% of what we're doing is incalculable in terms of you know the economic activity lost so there's just kind of a dollars and cents way to look at the missed opportunity there but i think about something a little bit different uh yeah there's an economic opportunity there and that's a big deal uh but when i think about the more we have focused on data in the past 10 years and that it could be correlation and not causation but Boy, when I think about how much we've ratcheted up the frustration and the anger and the rage and the self-doubt in that same amount of time, I have to think something's going on in terms of correlating those two things. That uh, that there's something about this kind of data-driven, fake news, clickbait sort of holes we're driving ourselves into that is not making things better and we're less happy. And, you know, that was, it was so important to Thomas Jefferson. It was kind of one of the big three, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of, you know, happiness. It's, it's a big deal. And I think the, the, the biggest deal is we're, we're becoming more and more unhappy. The more unhappy we are, the less able we are to do our jobs. And I think it's just the designers and the advertising folks who are just on the front end of it 
because our jobs are so empathy heavy mm. that uh, we're going to be the first ones. You know, the, the wave is going to hit us first. And, but it's coming for everybody. Uh, it's just going to hit the, you know, it hits nurses. It hits caregivers. If you talk with anyone who's caring for an ailing parent or, you know, I've heard those ads. Hey, if you're taking care of a parent, you're a caregiver. Heard those ads? I've heard those ads. Uh, it's really, it's hard work. And it's hitting them first, but it's coming for the rest of us. And I think we have a responsibility uh, as people who are aware of it and who live, you know, whose currency is empathy in terms of what we sell, what we, what we do for a living. I think we have a responsibility to help change that. Big takeaway there is there's a lot of stuff that isn't very good. And it's because it probably lacks empathy. And that leads to anger and just a generally less productive society. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's tough, you know, the, um, uh, it is a big question and, you know, you, you ask it be a really difficult question. Well, why does it really matter? And is it self-evident that we should strive for happiness? Is that really a big deal? And it's like, oh man, here's another designer artist talking to us about how we need to be happy. We just need to get our work done and hard work is its own reward and all those sort of good things. And I, you know, uh, hard to argue with that. I can't quantify that uh, for people, but I can quantify what the research in a very limited way is telling us is that when we're not happy and we don't, you know, we don't come from a secure place, we are less able to empathize with others. The less we're able to empathize with others, you know, the poorer our design, advertising, marketing, some nursing is. Those have real economic consequences, real life and death consequences when, uh, you know, the, the nurses and the doctors, the folks who study empathy in the clinical environment really know that, hey, they can measure how many people die because the doctors burned out. Like, that's quantifiable. So just because we haven't quantified the impact of anger and rage in the design community or in the marketing community doesn't mean it doesn't have a quantifiable impact mm -hmm. in decreased product performance, decreased economic performance, increased defect rates in software. All of those sort of things uh, have yet to be quantified, uh, but that doesn't mean they are not real. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll share one more thought uh, before we kind of start wrapping up because I want to be respectful of your time, Jason. But one of the things that I really pulled out of all of that, particularly the pyramid story, which was interesting, is 10% is great, 20% is professionally okay, which means acceptable, useful, even valuable, arguably. Yes. The other 70% is just shit, right? And it, it makes me wonder, I think there's a different view on it rather than saying, how do we improve that 70%? The flip side of that in my brain says, how do we just stop doing that 70%? Yes. Right? Like, and then all of a sudden, we're not actually chasing some after something that's A, not worth pursuing, and then B, 
has no direct positive benefit to society or the work that we do. You know, it's kind of a crazy thought. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but let me follow on that for a second. Let's, I, I want to do a yes and with you. Uh, wonderful improv technique, by the way. Learn it, people. Uh, okay, so yes and. What if we stopped doing that? Well, why wouldn't we stop doing that? And that's not quite a yes and. I understand. Don't, don't send me emails. Uh, I think, and this, this circles back to data, and I, I hate to kind of rag on data. That's not, that's not the intent. But think about it. What does data require? What is kind of scientism and kind of this data focused, you know, we're doing experimentation. We're doing, oh, we're going to fail fast. We're going to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall. We're going to see what sticks. We're going to do all this stuff. So I'm going to run a pay-per-click campaign, and I'm going to try 50 variants of a particular you know, uh, uh, ad. Or I remember working on a project for a major retailer, and we did hundreds of variants on you know, online store, where would you put a colored bar? What font would you use? All this stuff. And I thought to myself, when I heard you say, well, why don't we just stop doing the 70%? Well, the data approach, you know, to this point has said, well, you can't stop doing that. That we need to just keep doing all this stuff. There's a, such this bias for action and do, 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 test, test, test. Experiment, experiment, experiment. It's how you learn. You collect more, collect more, which means in advertising, design, marketing, you just got to keep doing stuff. And they do it in medicine too, by the way. And I just hadn't thought of it this way. I mean, how many tests are they running? How much stuff are they doing? And the other way to think about it is, can we just stop doing that? Boy, if we don't think, it, like, boy, the chances of that working are are really low. Why don't we? Why don't we stop doing that? Why? Why don't we kind of take that back? And it's so antithetical to hear, right? I mean, especially in Western culture, that hey, Grandma's eighty nine. She is. She has dementia. She has months to live, and we could do these 20 tests that would tell us how to get her three more days of life. Maybe we sh should we do that? Is that the right thing to do? Those are really heavy, difficult questions when it's life and death, but I know the medical folks struggle with that. You know, on when you're in kind of product design or advertising, we don't typically deal with things quite like that, but you know, boy. Should we not send another email blast? Should we not do another ad campaign? Is it just too much for people? Should we just stop doing the crap? Uh, but, well, if I stop doing that, I won't have the data. And the data is giving me this certainty, but it's kind of like the, you know, it's kind of like the Red Queen problem, right? I run faster and faster just to stay in the same place. Mm -hmm. And... That's the part. No one likes being the hamster on the hamster wheel. You know you're not getting anywhere. And that's kind of how when I think about data and kind of scientism in kind of professionally applied in my field, I feel like it's a red queen problem. We are racing and racing faster and faster and faster just to stay in, in the same place. 
That's interesting. The only other thing I would add to that. Uh, so yes, and I wonder if the 70% of just shit work actually justifies the means to getting to the 10% that's really good. So if we were to stop doing the 70% that doesn't matter or isn't effective or isn't valuable, would that ever push growth to get to that effective 10%, that really good 10%? Because if only the 10% was happening, there's not enough learning to happen to continue the cycle to even allow for that 10% to have a future. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I it and that's the intuitive part that I think uh that I'm not sure is true. You know, when you really when you see it, it, I'd ask us to think about when you see the 10% happen. You know, whether that's in a product design or an ad campaign or patient care or whatever those kind of high empathy uh, jobs are when you see the ten percent, they're learning inside of that ten percent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not as though hey, they're doing the seventy percent crap to get to the ten that's good. No, when you you know it when you see it when you're on a when you're on a project, and I've been on a few of these, and they're special in your career when you're on one. That yeah, you might be having little failures along the way, and you're learning a ton. You're doing little experiments here and there. But it's different than just throwing shit against the wall. It's not like that. And people who have been involved in great software development programs or in great ad campaigns or develop great products, that 10% is kind of a magical place where experimenting and learning absolutely happens uh, inside that brilliance. So I'm not sure that we need to do the 70%. I don't, I'm not sure we need to wade around in the cesspool in order to learn where the edges of it are, uh, especially when I think we know better. And, especially, and that's where that humanism can help us, where, yeah, if I, didn't, if I had no empathy at all and I had no human skills on that side of the pendulum and I had no idea where to start, uh, then yeah, I probably have to shoot a whole bunch of bullets at the wall and hope something hits its target mm-hmm. because I don't know any better. But I think the human side of it can help us say, here's the big pile of crap over here in this 70%. Why don't you aim for the 30? <laughs> and I think that's what the human side of it can really help us do. Uh, help us just aim in the right place. It's not to say that you don't slip and you don't fall in the pool of crap. I know I have professionally when I was aiming for the good stuff, but I think that's really the role of humanism in that is we can use data and we can use learning. We can use experimentation. We can use all our empathy tools uh, to not have to worry about being over on that other, other side uh, as much. If, if that's making sense at all. Sure. No, it does. The why empathy matters is that it helps separate the 70% from the 30%. That's, yeah. that's, that's the punchline there. So that's great. Um, Jason, I'm going to be re- respectful of your time uh, because we are certainly running up to the end of it. Um, if I were to ask you, out of everything we discussed, what's one thing that people really ought to take away? What do you think that that would be? 
Yeah, you know, there is, we kind of had a heavy talk. And anyone who's still sticking with us at this point, God bless you. Uh, I, I love you vicariously. This is a lot. And we got into some heavy territory. Uh, but I'm drawn to Dr. Chesak and her work. And uh, I can't help but think, you know, put on your own mask before helping others. And, you know, taking time, you know, I was, I was binge watching Queer Eye um, a few weeks ago. And it was uh, Jonathan Van Ness, who incidentally went to Aveda a block away from my house, hmm. uh, which fun fact. Uh, and he had he, he said almost the same thing in a little bit of a different way. He said there's a. You know, there's kind of a difference between vanity and self-care. And their whole show is about self-care, self-respect, self-dignity, so that you can show up for others. And when you think about the whole ethos of that show and how why it's so different than other shows, uh, almost every other show, is that they focus on self-care and self-love so that you can show up for your family, for your kids, for your spouse, and you can do what you have to do uh, for them. And that there's a difference between that and vanity because people think, oh, if I'm taking care of myself, that means it's vanity. Like, no, 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 there's a difference between that. And that's precisely what Dr. Chesak was talking about and researching on. So when I think about I, what I hope you do, what I hope people take away from this is the next time you're on an airplane and you hear put on your own mask before you help someone else, you think about it a little differently. and you take a few minutes to take care of yourself and do something that recharges you because you will do better no matter what your career is. That's awesome. Jason, uh, where can folks find you or uh, learn more about the work that you're doing and, and maybe keep up? Is there anything you want to share for, for folks listening today? Well, t- uh, two big things. Uh, thank you, by the way. Uh, number one, uh, as I talk with publishers, publishers are really interested in the size of my platform and how many people are connected to me and all of these things. So please, please, please uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. Uh, it'll be linked from this podcast. That that won't be hard. And if you are so inclined from there and you want to read about, you know, go deeper in any of these different topics or other topics that are kind of related and tangential t- to this at jasontvoyevich.com, which will also be linked. You can go to my blog. It's a pretty blog. It has a really nice WordPress theme. I really like it. Uh, It's very visual. And you can kind of dig in and you can read all about just different topics that surround this. And you can sign up for uh, emails. And my last email, I talked about how animals are surprisingly intelligent and how animals could be the next consumers in a consumer economy. It's kind of a crazy off the wall idea that we can teach crows how to create their own crow economy. Uh, it's, it's not as far fetched as you think. It's a blast. It's a lot of fun. And if you sign up for my emails, you get really weird, random thoughts like that about every month or so. So what you're saying is nowhere near the level of weight <laughs> what we covered no, in our chat today. <laughs> no, not at all. And we can, uh, there is, okay, last thing. So if you're with us this far, you'll get some fun at the end. 
they say, well, how do we know that uh, animals could be consumers? And this is, this is just kind of a fun sidebar. Uh, what happens in Southeast Asia and some of the temples today where monkeys have figured out how to exchange things of value that they steal from people for food they like. So they'll steal your glasses, they'll steal your camera, and they will exchange them. You have to give them uh, you know, candy bars or chips, and if you give them something, you try to give them a piece of fruit, they'll throw the fruit back at you because they know you've got candy bars. Some of the monkeys have learned how to find change on the floor and figured out how the vending machines worked. Uh, so, and in one experiment, uh, and this is a famous one, you can Google this one. Uh, they taught a group of rhesus monkeys, I believe, the value of money that, and they had the monkeys in their cages and they taught them, they gave them coins and kind of associated the coins with food and with value. Well, they had to cancel, they had to shut down the experiment because the, it got freaky in a hurry. And the monkeys uh, figured out the second oldest profession within a month. <laughs> and, you know, what I found funny was like, yeah, we had to shut down the experiment. And I actually read the notes and they didn't shut it down immediately. They kind of let it be <laughs> freaky for a little while to collect that data. And that's how you know that researchers are kind of fun people. So that's maybe the other takeaway is meet a scientist and talk with them. They're probably they're probably a whole lot of fun. Oh, man. Yeah. Let me tell you what. That was a real gem if you have made it this far. Um, Jason, thank you very much for taking your time and having this conversation with us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Zach. I appreciate it. Definitely. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode. Consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to the Aurelius Podcast, the show where we talk with brilliant minds about user research, UX design, and building great products that meet the needs of real people and what you learned about them. Aurelius is a user research and insights tool for design and product teams. Aurelius helps you add, tag, organize, search, and share all of your user research notes and customer feedback insights to figure out what you learned faster and easier than ever before so you can make awesome designs, products, and features. Check us out for a free trial at AureliusLab.com. That is A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Or find us on Twitter at AureliusLab. We'll see you next time.